Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. morning, church family. It's great to be gathered together with you. I'll tell you at the end of the, uh, we're going to do communion at the end of the service. At the end of the last service, uh, I was just overwhelmed with thinking about how we're as a church, we're supposed to be different. And how many of my friends that I know in our community, and some, I imagine each one of you here has the same case, they give no thought of attending church. And for many of us here, and I know some of you just popped in or whatever, uh, like, some of your weekend revolves around being here in this place and celebrating, encountering God and trying to learn from his word and different things and get rest the night before and all that kind of stuff so you can be here and be fully engaged. But how many people, it doesn't make any difference because they don't think it makes any difference. And Paul's plan when he's writing to the Corinthians is you should be an alternative to the world. But if the world looks at us and we're not any different, we're not much of an alternative. It's just a waste of time. And so we're going to hear from God's word this morning a challenge that's going to challenge us to be different. It's going to be countercultural, And I believe it's because we have the Spirit of God living in us that that's possible. And so we're going to open up the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm pumped because I know, I know, I'm going to guarantee you something. I don't usually do this for a sermon. I guarantee this applies to your life today. If it doesn't, email me, call me, I'll buy you lunch, whatever, and uh, I'll give you a little test here in just a moment. Let's pray before we do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can open up your scriptures today. Thank you that you want to speak to us. Thank you that your spirit indwells so many of us, that your spirit's present. Thank you that we can be in at what you told us in the book of Corinthians already. This is your temple. You dwell uniquely here in this place. And will you uniquely speak to our hearts, maybe bring about things that we hadn't even thought of as, as our worship leader this morning was saying, thinking about our week, that you were teaching us stuff through that. We didn't even see it. Will you show us now? God, I pray for every person here that you'd have a word for them this morning of all the verses that I read and all the things that I say, God, that would you speak at least one truth into their lives that makes a difference, it makes them different. God, if there's somebody who's not a Christian and you want to draw them to yourself, will you overwhelm them with your love and your grace and your pursuit of them and draw them to you today and let today be the day of salvation? And if there's somebody who's in sin, they might not even realize it, will you confront that sin? If there's a believer who needs the fan of fire in their belly to be fanned and, and, and just push them further along, God, will you do that? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here, here's how I know this is going to apply to everybody here today. Is there anybody here who's never had a conflict with another human being? Please raise your hand. All right. If somebody raised their hand, I want to know who the liars are so we can confront them, get that out of the system. All right. Everybody here has had conflict before, and it's March Madness, so we've got to talk about this a little bit. Probably filled out some brackets. Some of you, you've got your team. Do you know what a rivalry is? It's code language for conflict, FYI. How many of you here are, maybe you filled your bracket out to do it, but you're hoping that Duke and UNC meet for the fourth time this year and play in the national championship game? No, the NC Staters, no. Hey, how many NC Staters here hate it, hate it, that UNC says that you're not really a rival? Anybody here? Isn't that so arrogant and pompous of them to do that? And then the UNC's got their comeback, well, then beat us, then just just beat us. See, it's conflict, it's conflict. And if you don't think it's conflict, because we call a rivalry in sports is conflict. Do you have a sibling rivalry? Anybody have sibling rivalries? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They're awful sibling. That's the problem, right? It's not you. It's them. And I was thinking about, as a kid, things that I fought with, with my brother about. Anybody fight about who's, who's going to be in the front seat? Ever had that one? Or, or who took my, what, what happened to my, fill in the blank, clothes, food, whatever it was. There's like siblings. It's just like built in. There's going to be fight. Did you ever have a fight with your sibling? about who started the fight. You started it. No, you started it. And they're raising their hands. I see some kids back here raising their hands. You're fighting about fighting. (laughs) 
Oh, my kids, don't, they talk about ridiculous things they fight about. One time I was driving in the car with my kids, I was getting off the phone, and I actually heard one of them say to the other one, would you stop breathing? <laughs> like, you're going to start a fight about their very existence. <laughs> then I thought, for some of us, you know, that's so long ago that we were fighting with our siblings. We see with our kids, it's easier to see with our kids. But we got some couples here, and roommates, and friends, and just when you're living in close proximity, I made a list of some things that you could fight about. Let me clarify, this is not from personal experience. I'm not looking to start any more conflict in my marriage. This is research. Research would say that some people who live in close proximity might fight over the thermostat. Anybody here done that? Some people want it hot. Some people want it cold all the time. That can be a point of tension. How about where to eat? Have you ever had that fight before with somebody? Every day, someone said, where to eat? Where would you like to eat? How about this response? I don't care. How about we go to Gonza's? I don't want Mexican. Let's order pizza. No, not not pizza. So you do care where we eat. (laughs) Ah, now I see. Or you you go through the drive-thru. Have you ever had this situation? Just stay on food for a second. Where you you ask the person, do you want anything? No, I'm good. Then you order and they start eating all your fries. (laughs) Get off my fries. You said you didn't want anything. I just spent a dollar to get you out of my fries. How about this one? This one drives me nuts. It's personal maybe here, right here. Toilet paper? Ever fight over toilet paper? Like, how hard is it to put a new roll of toilet paper, kids, on the toilet paper thing? And then please put it on the right way. We got any disputes about that? Well, listen, anybody think it's supposed to go backwards, let me just tell you, that's wrong. You're wrong, okay? And you can tell. And if you're the person who thinks it's supposed to go that way, then you tell it. The pastor said, so it's got to be in the Bible somewhere. It's like in numbers or something. It's there. How about this? You want to have a fight? Here's an advanced one. Assemble IKEA furniture together. Yeah, now he's preaching. There we go. You ever had fights over properly folding clothes, chores, dishes, making the bed? How about passive comments? Are these your socks? Well, there's two of us, and they ain't yours. We're actually going to fight about this. See, there's conflicts about everything. We fight about all kinds of stuff. And we just talked about siblings and sports and couples, maybe roommates. What about business partners? Wouldn't it make sense if you put two Christians together that are both, and they have a contract that says how things are supposed to go? It should be like infallible. There shouldn't be, how could there possibly be a problem? But we fight about everything. Politics, look at social media. Believers fighting about politics. Two Christians, they enter into a contract together, and then one of them sees it different than the other one at some point. Or maybe they just choose to lie or steal or wrong you. Let me tell you something. If you're in relationships with people, your kids as parents, they're not always going to think you're the wisest person on the planet. Kids, your parents don't think you're the wisest person on the planet. There's going to be a wronging at some point. Someone's going to wrong the other one, then what do you do? What do you do once you're wronged? And today what we're going to talk about is even more important than that. Today's message, we're talking about conflict, but we're not talking about five steps to resolve conflict, how to deal with conflict in a godly manner. That's another message another time. Today what we're going to talk about is what you do when you're wronged and what that reveals about you and specifically your relationship with God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been walking through this book to this church in Corinth, and we've been calling this series Letters to RDU because so many of the things that are happening in Corinth parallel what goes on here every day in the triangle. And so we look at they've got the same temptations as us. They're facing a lot of the same issues as us. The same things are going on in their hearts. And we've seen so far, if you'd been with us just the first four chapters that we were walking through this letter, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, you'd think they only had one issue as a church, and it was division. Remember we talked about, they had conflict. I'd read to you about things that happen today in churches, people getting fights about, like, whether they have deviled eggs at a church potluck. You don't want to invite the devil in. See that? See, that's a problem. 
They give you a list of like things that stupid stuff Christians fight about in church. And we talked about division. But then we saw last week, they got more than just that for problems. They got sexual sin in the church. That even pagans, people who don't believe in Jesus, don't follow Jesus, don't believe in God, don't claim to follow the Bible, that even pagans would say, that's out of bounds. And it's going on in the church. And we ended up leaving and saying, we're going to see today, there's more problems. It's like piling problem upon problem. And now they're talking about two Christians that actually would go to court with one another because they can't resolve their conflict. And so Paul's going, this is shameful what's happening in the church. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be the alternative, a different alternative to the world. But what they see is you're just like them. And then we talked about last week where we left off. And so we'll pick up where we left off. That as Christians, a lot of times we're told we're not supposed to judge. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 said, read the whole thing. The problem is we judge the wrong people about the wrong things in the wrong way. The reality is we should judge the right people about the right things in the right way. Wrong people should not judge people outside the church. Don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians, okay? Let's just start doing that like in general. Expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. But start expecting Christians to act like Christians. So judge the right people, judge the people that are in the church. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Judge them about the right things. Not their motives. Nobody knows motives. You might guess and you might think you've got the supernatural. You don't. But you know actions. Judge actions. And in the right way, that's Matthew 7. Jesus says, hey, don't judge lest you be judged. You're going to be judged. In the manner that you judge, judge. And remove the sin from your own life. And then deal with the sin, then deal with the sin in your brother's life. Because you love them in a loving way. Right people, right things, right way. Chapter 6. I'm going to read you all the way through verse 11, which I know is a lot of verses to read at once, but I want you to see the whole passage together, and then we'll, we'll, we'll zoom out and unpack it. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law or court before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so the problem here that he's saying is there's two people that have a conflict, two believers in Jesus that have the Spirit of Christ indwelling them, that have the wisdom of the cross, and they're going to a pagan to figure it out. This is... Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what we have here, the situation is, you've got two guys that are in the church that are going to court with one another because they can't resolve their conflict. And before we jump back into the passage, let me just give you a little context here. Uh, The Greeks loved lawsuits. And a lot of the church in Corinth are people that, that were Greek people. And so that was a normal part of their culture. Part of their nature is to go to law. In fact, it was said of Greeks that every Greek is a lawyer. Because they would almost all partake in, it was almost like their reality TV of the time. They'd have juries uh, that were 600, 1,000 people in a jury. 
And so by the time you were an adult, you've already tried to decide cases. Many people have tried cases uh, on, on behalf of themselves, on behalf of other people, and so they thought they were really gifted at this legal thing. They loved litigation. And you read all the historical background, and it's all about that. And then I think, they got nothing on us. I was actually watching the news this week, not in sermon prep, just watching some of the news, and heard somebody say, you can sue somebody about anything. It's not an issue of whether it's against the law. You just, we're just the litigious society that we live in. You can sue somebody about anything. And so I did a little research, and they estimate that on average in the United States, there are 40 million lawsuits a year. So I just quickly divided that by 365, try and bring it, that's numbers too big for me, and so didn't take out Christmas, didn't take out Sundays. On average, that's about 110,000 lawsuits every day. There are over a million lawyers, so we love lawsuits. I actually read one story about a guy, and like you've all heard like the famous stories of like somebody spills coffee on themselves, they sue McDonald's and make millions of dollars, and you're like, give me hot coffee, whatever. I read a story about a guy, his name was Robert Lee Brock, if you want to look him up. He sued himself for violating his religious beliefs and his civil rights. <laughs> and here's why. He got arrested for breaking and entering and stealing some stuff. And when he went to jail, he said, I was, the reason why I did it is because I was drunk, which was a violation of my own religious beliefs <laughs> and my civil rights. He sued himself for $5 million and then claimed, because I'm incarcerated, it's the state's fault, I can't work, and so the state's going to have to pay the $5 million. You could say, that guy's kind of smart. No, he's, what a fool. So you can sue about anything in our day and age. The temptation is to come to a text like this and think to yourself, well, I've not, not gone to court. This doesn't apply to me. Or I'm not suing anybody. Nobody's suing me. This doesn't apply. No, this is actually about conflict. What he's doing is he's taking a case and he's showing the extreme example of where this leads to. And he's saying, you've already, you've already lost. Like, if you get to this point, it doesn't matter what the judge says. Everybody's already lost. Before we jump into the text, let me just say some, some pastoral words here, because this passage has been abused throughout the history of the church. Let me tell you some things that's not teaching. It's not teaching. It's never okay to go to court. It's not teaching Christians are above the law. In fact, some people have taken passages like this trying to say they don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> Read Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 talks about how we're supposed to submit to our authority. No matter which authority, no matter if it's the authority you voted for, it doesn't matter. Submit to your authorities. God's in charge of who actually gets there. And we submit to our authorities, and there are laws of the land for a reason. Now, in light of what we talked about last week, we talked about the article that came out in the Houston Chronicle and talked about sexual abuse in the church. Sometimes churches have taken passages like this and say, we handle all this stuff in-house. Listen, this is not talking about criminal activity in this passage. We're not talking about embezzlement. We're not talking about sexual abuse. It's not, those are, that should go before a court. People go, get imprisoned for that stuff. What we're talking about in this passage there's a dispute between two believers. It doesn't have anything to say about a dispute between a believer and a non-believer, two non-believers. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. And it doesn't mean even it's ever wrong to appeal to civil court. Look at Paul, the guy who wrote this book. Read the book of Acts if you want to study this. How many times did he appeal to the legal system in the book of Acts? Read Acts chapter 21 and 22 where he gets falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He gets beaten, gets an opportunity then to share the gospel before people he wouldn't have gotten to share the gospel with. And then when they're about to kill him, he says, can you do this to a Roman citizen? They go, you're a Roman citizen? Oh, he just appealed to court. He gets released. So it's not wrong to, to appeal to the law. It's not wrong to talk about your rights. It's not wrong to do those things, but it's wrong to do them in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. And we know what's happening here in this passage, based on the verb that's used in verse 8, they're actually arguing about money. You're defrauding one another, that's language for property, for material things, for, for money. 
And Paul's going, you're going to court with another Christian about, you're going to judge angels, and you're arguing about money? You've lost. Everybody's lost. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why is he saying in verses 1 through 8 about a legal thing, and then verses 9 through 11, it almost seems like they don't go together, but there's this little word there. You might remember from Sesame Street, it's a conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? It's like, why do these even go together? Well, they do go together. Usually when you hear people quote uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they just read verses 9 through 11. Don't you know the wicked aren't going to inherit eternal life? And such were some of you. But, but why is it that verse 9 is connected to this legal case that's going on, verses 1 through 8? Let me tell you why. Because he's telling them probably the most beautiful phrase that we've seen in this whole book so far, but such were some of you. It says adulterers, swindlers, revilers, homosexual, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't expect non-believers to live like believers. And that's what you were. But you've been made different, and that should make a difference. If you've been made different, that should make a difference in your life. If you've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should change the way you relate with other people. It should change your conflict. And so our first point today is simply this, that your conflict should should reveal your changed life. So we all have conflict, and some people it's big scale and big lawsuits, and some people it's small scale, and you're arguing about who sits on the front seat of the car, and you get road rage, and then you get food issues, and there's all over the gamut. But all that conflict should reveal your changed life. And that's what Paul's saying in this passage after he does these eight verses, and then he ties it together in verse 9, and then verse 11 and such were some of you. You used to live like non There's a problem here. One of the problems here in this passage is this, is that believers are living like non-believers in the way they're handling conflict. You're not living according to your identity. You, you, and look at what it says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Interesting, that's a legal term in light of verses 1 through 8. That's an interesting term. See, to, to be washed, what he's talking about is you were washed of your sins. You've been forgiven of your sins. Your sins were scarlet. They've been washed white as snow. Some people think this is a picture pointing to their baptism when they are baptized. And some of you might need to be baptized. We're baptizing again on Easter. But in baptism, what happens is we dunk people under the water. We say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It's symbolic of the cleansing of your sins. It doesn't wash your sins off, but it's symbolic of it. You're saying you've been washed. That's what happened at your salvation. You've been sanctified. That means you've been set apart for God to be different. You've been justified. It's a legal terminology to say you were declared, you're not righteous, but because of the blood of Christ and you were washed, you've been declared righteous by God. The implied command then is live like it. And so how does it tie to verses 1 through 8? Let's go back and unpack verses 1 through 8, and then we'll see. You've got these two guys that have a grievance with one another based on the verb in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud. It's talking about a financial dispute. It's not hard to reconstruct what's happened here. Paul doesn't get into all the details. The Corinthians would know. They'd know exactly who we were talking about here and what was going on in the church. And Paul doesn't unpack it. So let's unpack it. Let's just think about this. You got two guys, person one, person two. Let's just give them names for the sake of making it a little bit more personal. You got Bob Believer and Chris Christian. See how that works? How that happened? Got two believers, Bob, Chris. They go into business together. Maybe Bob comes up with a product. Maybe Bob's really smart, and he comes up with a product that every time you take the toilet paper off the roll, it restocks it and puts it on the right way every time. It's amazing. And then Chris, his role in it is that Chris is a patent attorney. 
And so he gets a patent on this deal so that nobody else can duplicate it. And because it was in this time, we'll just bring it into our time, they go on Shark Tank. You ever seen the show Shark Tank? Seen the show? It's a fun show to watch. It's okay, Christians, you can watch TV. You can watch that show. It's a good show. And so they go on, they present their idea. Nobody gives them a deal. They don't want to get in the toilet. Oh, that's not my thing, FUBU guy says. And Mark Cuban's like, I'm going to stick with the sports stuff. And they got Mr. Wonderful. Mr. Wonderful is going to give them a deal. But he wants royalties. So every time this thing gets used, he can get a, every time you pull your toilet paper, he's making a .0 penny, .01 pennies on it. He's going to be a billionaire at some point. And so he's pumped about it. And they get off the show. And then Chris, the patent attorney, goes to his buddy Bob and says, I know that we had an agreement, that we were partners, we split everything 50-50, but you know the reason why Mr. Wonderful gave us a deal is because we had a patent, and no one could compete with us. And since I'm the patent attorney, I think I add more value to the company, and so I think it should actually be a 75-25 split. So I want to renegotiate our contract. And Bob goes, I, I think I'm getting wronged here. I mean, this was my idea. I'm the one who came up with this. I made the prototypes in my garage. I went to the marketplace, started selling these things, and you did the legal stuff. I'm not saying you didn't do anything, but if anything, it should be 75 me, 25 you. And now they got a conflict. They can't figure out what to do, so they go to court. And Paul goes, this whole thing is a mess. And he says to them the problems. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare? He's saying, how dare you? How dare you go to court? Before the unrighteous instead of the saints. And then verse 6, same thing. But brother goes to law against brother. And that before, you're going before unbelievers? And then if you read verses 2 through 4, there are all these rhetorical questions. And you know the answers based on the question. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Yes, you do know. I taught you that, Paul's saying. And in this world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try? You can't decide stuff about money? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And then jump down to verse 7 and see what he says. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another, it's already a defeat. You've already lost. It doesn't matter what the judge says. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather let them steal your money? Be defraud. Lose, lose financially rather than lose spiritually. And verse 5, I love verse 5. It's probably the most sarcastic verse in the book so far. So I say this to your shame. Now, earlier in the book, remember he said, I'm not saying this stuff to shame you. But here he's saying, you should be ashamed. This is shameful. Can it be? And remember, remember before I read this next part, Greeks love wisdom. Remember how much we talked about in chapters 1 and 2? The Greeks loved wisdom, and the wisdom of the cross seems like foolishness because the wisdom of the world. Listen to the irony of this. Here's the sarcasm. Can it be there is no one? Not the least educated, the least qualified, the newest Christian in the church. There's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between two brothers. It's, it's basically like this. In verse 1, he said, how dare you? In verse 5, he goes, I dare you. I dare you to. Can you find, it's like when you say to your little brother, you can't drink a gallon of milk in one minute. I dare you. He's going, I dare you to solve this yourself. You can't figure out an issue with money? And then, verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud. He's saying you live like non-believers. Even your own brothers. So there's three problems here. And then I'll tell you how verses 9 through 11 tie in. First problem is, how is the world going to know that we're his disciples, John 13, 35, the way we love one another? The first problem is we don't care about our witness in the world because we care so much about ourselves and our conflict. 
Second problem is, I already mentioned this, they're not being who they are. Be who you are. They're not living out their identity. Third problem is, they don't care about God's reputation. And we're going to see more about that. But then verse 9, there's that conjunction, or, so you can't just take verse 9 without verses 8, and verses 1 through 8, and don't you know? It's that phrase. We see that phrase all, all throughout this book, and a lot in this chapter. Remember when I first taught it to you, is that it's the, when you say to your kids' parents, don't you know, you're not supposed to drink out of the toilet? Don't you know, kids, you're not supposed to eat out of the dog dish? Don't you know? And Paul's saying, don't you know? Like, this is just obvious stuff. You do know this. Don't you know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's tied to verse 8. And so in verse 7, he's talking to the guy who was wronged. And he says to Bob, Bob, wouldn't it be better to suffer wrong? And then in verse 8, he's talking to the guy who was wronging him. Hey, Chris, you defraud even your brother? Don't you know what a non-believer looks like? What they do? You're living like a non-believer. So verses 9 through 11 are there, tied to verses 1 through 8, because they're a warning. Warning, like a warning label on, on, on poison or a warning label on a product. Warning, warning, you're claiming to be a Christian, but you're living just like the world. Warning, you might not be a Christian. Because if God makes a difference, then you'll be different. And let me tell you something. You want to know where the rubber meets the road? It's in relationships. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me about what you believe. We can write it down on paper. We can come up with a you know, doctoral dissertation and all the right things to believe as a Christian. But you want to know if you really believe them or not? The rubber meets the road in relationships. You want to see what you believe about the cross? Let's look at your conflict. You want to know what you believe about loving your neighbor? Let's see what happens when you have a conflict with your neighbor. Let's talk about your, your marriage. Let's talk about, you want, we can give all the wedding vows all day long and have a good ceremony, religious time, but what happens in the real relationship? The rubber meets the road in relationships. And you want to see people who believe the right stuff? Read the New Testament. I'll tell you who has the best theology in the entire New Testament. It's demons. They're the first ones to identify Jesus. They're right about the Messiah. They know the truth. In fact, James says that even the demons believe and shudder. So here's a problem. Here's a problem in Southern Christianity, FYI. It might be American Christianity, but I live in the South. A lot of people think there's going to be a quiz at the end. And as long as I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I'm in. Away from me, I never knew you. See, there's a thing that we call cultural Christianity. People who study those things, do you know what they call it? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me unpack that. Moralistic, you're going to be a good guy. I mean, you're nice. You're not going to, mostly not going to steal, maybe in a contract, but you're not going to go like take something out of your neighbor's house, and you're probably going to help them take their garbage out. Like, you're nice. Therapy, therapeutic, yeah. and God exists to make me happy and help me fulfill my dreams. And so we baptize the American uh, dream with some Bible verses, and we, it's really our life is about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. God's basically an ATM machine supposed to deliver to us whatever we want to make our lives good, and when he doesn't, I can't believe that a God wouldn't do what I'd want him to do as if he's a, independent of us in some way moralistic, therapeutic deism. We believe there's a God, and we create one in our own image, and we might call him Jesus to do our bidding for us. That's called cultural Christianity. Can I tell you something about that? That's not Christianity. The Christianity of the Bible, Jesus, he was a crucified Messiah, FYI. And do you know what he says? He says, if anyone, not if martyrs, not if missionaries, if 
anyone wants to follow me. There's a cross involved. See, Jesus is a radical revolutionary. He is not for you to have some cultural adaptation that you can use his name for and think that you and God are cool. Christianity calls us to a self-denial. Christianity calls us to die to ourselves. If you want to gain the world, you're going to lose everything. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And Paul's saying to these guys, that's what you're doing. You're fighting for your rights. You're trying to get your thing. You're, li- you're living like, just like the rest of Corinth, but then you're claiming to be a follower. Of, you're a cultural Christian, which means you're no Christian at all. Which may be a warning call to some here. You knowing the right information and believing the facts is not going to make you right with God. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus solved the ultimate conflict. We'll come back to that. So what do we do? What do we do? If relationships is where the rubber meets the road, then how does this flesh itself out in application? Well, just think about it. The Bible says a lot of stuff about specific relationships with neighbors and spouses and kids and employers and like all kinds of stuff. So I jotted on a few this week just thinking about this. It's one thing to go to a wedding and to hear a pastor wax eloquently about Ephesians 5 husbands. And I'm supposed to love your wife like Christ loves the church. And you might think afterwards as you squeeze her hand, I'm going to buy her some flowers this week. But you want to know when it gets real? When you're in a fight. When there's conflict. And what does it look like to love your wife like Christ loved the church? Let's remember Christ washed his disciples' feet. Let's remember when Jesus was being crucified, though being reviled for Peter, he didn't revile in return. That no one took his life, he willingly laid it down for those that he had conflict with. You see, the rubber meets the road in relationships. What about at work? Because it's, it's great. Like if you're a Christian in, in a marketplace and, and you've got a job where maybe they let you do a Bible study and you get the other Christians in the office together and you just pray about like, I'm going to lead my one to Jesus. And so, God, will you give me a gospel opportunity in the office? And what do you think that's going to look like? Do you think it's going to look like somebody comes into your cubicle and says, will you lead me to Jesus today? What if it comes to you in the form of a conflict? See, so what do you do when your boss starts taking credit for your ideas? What do you do when you're promised a promotion and you don't get a promotion? Or they give you a promotion and you wanted more money and they actually just change your title a little bit and give you more responsibility, but no more money. So what do you do in those moments? Because you can read Colossians chapter 3, which says you work as you work for the Lord, not for men, but what does that look like fleshed out? See, what we believe gets really fleshed out in relationships and real relationships. So I can talk to you, you know, Father's Day, I can talk to you fathers. Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, disciple your children. Doesn't say parents, doesn't say family, doesn't say the church. Fathers, you're responsible to disciple your children. So we can talk about what that looks like. Let's get them together and have devotions. And you sit around the fireplace and one of your kids will go, Daddy, tell me how much Jesus loves me. Or you could have teenagers and they could slam the door in your face and say, I hate you. And what do you do then? What does it look like to show that kid what a heavenly father looks like who disciplines those he loves, gives good gifts, has unconditional love? How do you you live in that tension in relationships? Because it's in relationships we find out what you really believe. Do you see now why it is that your conflict can, should, reveal your changed life? Because you've experienced this love. And so what does he say, verse 11? You were washed. You were set apart to be different. You were justified before God. So live it out. And so then you filter your conflict through the cross. So what does cross-centered conflict look like? Second point, cross-centered conflict... Should reveal our confidence in God. 
cross-centered conflict should reveal our confidence in God. What do you mean by that? Well, God's the ultimate provider, right? It's not the circumstances. These guys ending up in court here. Did you see what this guy was told to do? Verse 7? Verse 7 says, says there, wouldn't it be better if you, you let them wrong you? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I'm going to tell you something about Corinth. Their culture was not a lot different than ours. You looked out for yourself. You take care of yourself. You fight for your rights. This was very countercultural. Reminder, reminder, Christianity is countercultural. And I realize the culture that I'm speaking these words to as I share this from Paul, from God, through Paul, it's very countercultural. We live in an entitlement culture. Everybody thinks they deserve something. You show, you go to, if you, if you signed up for the team, you get a trophy, Right? You graduated from the school. Somebody should be handing you a job. Like you, got, you did the, you did. I don't care what you did in calculus. Can you do this job? We think it's because we're willing. We should be allowed to do stuff. And so then we also live. We're, we are just so you know, as Christians, and if you go, to, if this is your church, we're Protestants. You know what that means? You're a protester. You, you, we naturally fight. We want our. We live in America. Fight for your rights. Have a protest. And Paul says here. Why not rather suffer wrong? This is countercultural. Now, Paul did it. Remember chapter 4? Go back to chapter 4. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and we still are, like the scum of the world. Because according to the world's philosophy, this is the exact opposite of what you do in a conflict. Now, remember, remember, I'm not, talking about, I'm not saying if you're being abused, you should keep being abused. I'm talking about that. But you're in a, a conflict you should be able to work out just with each other, and then you don't even bring other believers in, but you didn't go, you're going to go, wouldn't it be better than rather go to the court system to be wronged? And here's the reality. In our desire to fight for our rights, in our desire to live a, just like this world does and follow the world's wisdom, Jesus, you take care of eternity. I'm going to go with the world on everything else. No different. In our desire to live like that, we will not allow ourselves to be wronged. Jesus turned the other tree. That must be for some pacifism or something. Like, we wouldn't let that happen, but here's the reality. Sometimes we have to be wrong in order to be ready. Sometimes we have to be wrong in order to be ready for what God has for us. Sometimes in eternity, you're going to judge angels. So sometimes you're going to have to experience injustice here to be ready for that. You're going to have things that happen in your life here, and we're fighting against ever being wrong, and we miss out on what God might have for us even here in this life. Last week after the service, uh, our elders and leadership team got together, and we spent about eight hours just talking about where's the Lord leading our church, and we were praying and, and going through what is vision, and God's brought us to this place. Amazing thing that He's done to bring us to this place as a church. Amen. And what's next? What's God have for us next? And so we're praying through that, and we're talking about that. And one of our leaders, Matt Nyhoff, some of you know him, uh, started us off with a devotional. And if you remember last weekend was St. Patrick's Day, and he talked to us about the real St. Patrick and shared a bunch of stuff I didn't know. Did you know, did you know that St. Patrick's Day is not about green beer? Did anybody know that? St. Patrick, not about like getting snakes out of Ireland or anything like that. In fact, St. Patrick, he's not even Irish. Sorry, Irish people. Call Matt Nyhoff. <laughs> he was telling us the story of St. Patrick and how he actually was kidnapped and taken to Ireland. Next week, we're going to have somebody here talk about human trafficking a little bit. He was taken to Ireland and made a slave, heard the gospel, came to Christ, escaped from the slavery, 
went back to his home, lived there for 25 years, and then God spoke to him in a dream and told him, you've got to go back. You're going to go back to these barbarians in Ireland, share the gospel with them. <laughs> but he had to be wronged in order to understand so he could contextualize the gospel for these folks. He had to know the language these people he had to be wrong in order to be made ready. And he went back and he shared the gospel with those folks. And let me read you a quote from the real St. Patrick. It says, daily I expect to be murdered or betrayed or reduced to slavery if the occasion arises, but I fear nothing because of the promises of heaven. Amen. You're going to judge angels. You can't figure out money? Come on. Paul's going, you've been changed. It should change you. Be willing to live counter this culture. Be willing even to be wronged because it might be God making you ready for what he has for you in this life, or as St. Patrick said, in the life to come. When Matt shared that story, I didn't know all the details, and he was telling us all a lot more than what I shared with you about St. Patrick. And, and I said, he's like Joseph. Have you read Joseph in the Bible? Like we see this over and over again in the Bible, by the way. They got to let us be wrong to make us ready. Joseph gets sold. First case of human trafficking in the Bible. Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery. And then gets falsely accused of a crime. He keeps getting wrong over and over in his life. He's, it's never wrong to do what's right. Joseph keeps it. Sometimes he's arrogant, but he's trying to do the right thing. He keeps getting wronged. Years and years later, he stands before his brothers and he says, Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me. What you did wasn't right. But God used it for good. Transforming Joseph into the man he wanted him to be and the saving of many lives in a nation. See, many times we miss out on what God has and the ripple effects of that could be huge because we're fighting against God's plan for. Sometimes we've got to be willing to suffer wrong so we can be ready for what God has for us. Think about David in the Old Testament. You ever read about David? David gets anointed king. He's just a boy. That's before he fights the giant. He's anointed king. He knows he's going to be king, but he won't fight for his throne. Do you know why? Because it's God's throne. And if God wants him there, then God will put him there. If God, he's showing his confidence is in God. And Saul repeatedly wrongs him. Sometimes we have to be wrong in order to be ready, but it reveals that our, who's our ultimate provider? Is it the court case? Is it what happened? Paul says in this passage, have already lost? You think about it. Even if you go to court and you win this battle there against another brother, you haven't forgiven that brother? The root of bitterness in your heart? The unforgiveness that happens? The testimony? The Everybody's losing, even you. So your confidence in God would go like, like David. God wants me on the throne. If God, maybe God's preparing David to be the king he wants him to be by the wrongs that are happening by this wicked king, Saul. He was. Sometimes we have to be wronged to be ready. And it reveals our confidence in God. And cross-centered conflict. And reveal our confidence in God. And cross-centered conflict can reveal our love for God. Cross-centered conflict can re reveal our love for God. Remember one of the problems here was that these folks... These two guys, whatever their names were, they weren't concerned about the reputation of the community. They were going to take their dispute with each other. Do you know anybody that can solve this inside the church? Take it before a pagan court. You're going to take it before pagans in this world to solve this problem. You don't care about the name of God. And how were they transformed? Let me read you verse 11 again. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, a lot of times we don't care much about the reputation of God. We care about us. But let me tell you something. God cares a lot about his reputation. He talks about it all throughout the Bible. 
If you go to the Old Testament and you read, have you ever read the Exodus and the plagues that are there that happen at the Passover? Not just the Red Sea one, but like that whole frog thing and the gnats. Like this weird stuff, darkness that happens, locust, and it's like God's all powerful. If he wants to wipe Pharaoh out, why don't he just be like, dust, you're done, it's over. He tells us why in Exodus chapter 9. He says, but for this purpose, speaking to Pharaoh, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I've given you a name, Pharaoh, and you're wicked, and I'm going to show that my name is greater than your name. It's so important. It gets repeated in Romans chapter 9 in the New Testament, which is the Scripture speaking to Pharaoh. And so it's going to be all about God's name. And then what do we see in the New Testament? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name by which men shall be saved, women shall be saved, but the name of Jesus Christ. What happens with the followers of Jesus? They get told not to preach the gospel. They go out, they preach the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, says that they were celebrating, they were praising God because they were able to suffer dishonor. They got flogged for representing the name of Jesus Christ. They were willing to be wronged for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And how was your life changed? Verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you, and such were some of you, you were adulterers, you were thieves, you were greedy, you were homosexual, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name. You know what that's saying? It's saying that Jesus Christ solved the ultimate conflict for you. Read Romans 5 if you don't believe what I'm talking about. It says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 that you're given peace with God through Jesus Christ. Why did you need peace with God? Let me tell you why. Because you were at war with God. Because you were His enemy. As a sinner, His wrath is coming against you. So Jesus had to die for you. Maybe you're a guest you're like, I didn't ask Jesus to die. Why did Jesus have to die? The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so while you were a sinner, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for you. He shed His blood so that you didn't have to shed your blood. But, but, you've got to trust Him as your Savior, or you're still under the wrath of God. But if you've trusted Him, if you were washed, if you were sanctified, if you were justified, He solved the ultimate conflict for you by laying His life down, by willingly being wronged. He did no wrong. He wasn't dying for His sins. He was dying for your sins. He gives us the model at the cross, and many of us Many of us think, yeah, I believe that, I believe that. But do you love Him? If you love Him, then it fleshes itself out in our relationships with each other. You can't say that you love God if you don't love your brother. And so what do we do with this message? What do we do with today? Well, there could be hundreds of applications looking at how many people are here today. Some of you may be in a fight with your spouse on the way in here. I've done it. I know what it's like. You're fighting in the car, and then you come in here. This is the day that the Lord has made. Come and rejoice and be phony in it. Like, it's awesome. Some of you need to humble yourself before your spouse and confess your sin. It might be pride. It might be way bigger than that. And have a cross-centered conflict where you serve one another. Wives, it says in that same passage where I challenge your husbands to love you like Christ loves the church, to respect your husbands. What if he's not respectful? doesn't say. Respect your husbands. As an employee, maybe tomorrow that means you go into the office and maybe you're just more sensitive for the opportunity, the gospel opportunity will come to you in a way that you didn't expect of conflict or being wronged. Some of you might be in a lawsuit. You need to back up and go, maybe there's a way to restore. Maybe we should go to what we talked about last week with the process of restoration. If you're in a lawsuit with another believer and apply Matthew chapter 18, there's four stages, remember? One-on-one, you go to them one-on-one, then two or three people that love that person, go to them with those people, and then if necessary, then you go to the church. Like some of these things that, that we're taking to court, should be, it could be solved. 
together. Well, isn't it interesting that the judicial system actually steals Jesus' model of mediation before the trial? There's wisdom here. It's the wisdom of the cross. We need to apply the cross to our conflicts. When we apply the cross to our conflicts, then you know what? Our relationships look different. And then maybe the world would go, maybe the church is different. Like, like, do you not think that when they hear us arguing about deviled eggs or whatever stupid stuff, the color of the carpet, temperature of a room, whatever all that stupid stuff is, that they, they're like, well, if I get in an argument about where to put my grass, grass clippings with my neighbors, I'm not going to that guy. His church is, they can't even get along with each other in their faith community. We should be a different community because God's made us different. Amen?